Um, if you're uh, new or, or, or maybe just now joining us, today marks week seven of our eight-week series on the parables of Jesus. Um, now remember, if you've not been here, a, a parable is a short story that illustrates a deep spiritual reality. We've all heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Well, this is, this is one of the reasons why Jesus so often spoke and taught in parables throughout his earthly ministry, because stories, just like songs or paintings or other art forms, stories are highly effective bridges between our heads and our hearts. Stories are powerful in their ability to move us and shape us. But Jesus didn't speak in parables for the sake of sounding like a, like, a, like a Middle Eastern Yoda, okay? We need to get that straight. He spoke in parables in order to illustrate for us this, what life is like in his kingdom and what life is like under his kingship, under his rule. He spoke in parables essentially to show us what he's like and what our lives will look like when we follow after him and underneath the surface of these parables, they are invitations into a renewed way of living and being. They're invitations into a renewed ecosystem that operates within God's good rule and it results in the good life, the way life was intended for us. The parables are, are illustrations of and invitations into this good life that was intended from the beginning, before Adam and Eve and the rest of us turned our backs to God in favor of living under our own rule, as our own kings and, and queens, so to speak. And so if we were to flip to the first uh, few chapters of Genesis, specifically Genesis 3 at the beginning of the Bible, we would we would see that we collectively in our human rebellion against God's kingly rule, we cut ourselves off from Him and His kingdom and we forged a new kingdom, so to speak, a, a, a kingdom of man, a kingdom of earth. And we don't need parables to show us what life in the kingdom of man is like. We just simply need to scroll through our news feeds and turn on the TV if you're brave enough to do that these days. Because the sin and the selfishness and the death and destruction and the decay of our kingdom of man is all around us. But our hurting hearts find great comfort in the parables because they remind us that this, what we see around us on the news, is not the way God intended things to be. This is the result of us trying to rule ourselves. And so, there's that glass again. I need to, I'm going to stay over on this side of the pulpit. <laughs> the Bible also tells us that, that, that God didn't just leave us in the wreckage of this new kingdom we've created for ourselves. 
He came down. God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to rescue us, to defeat sin on a cross, to restore us to the life he intended for us in the beginning. And that life is what Jesus is demonstrating throughout the region of Galilee as he performs signs and wonders and and he heals and he teaches with great authority the kingdom of heaven that he is unleashing into our broken king of man is beautiful. It's nearly irresistible. He's demonstrating the very kingdom that the parables are pointing us to. So wherever Jesus traveled, uh, if we were to open up the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there was a crowd always around him. And in the very beginning of Luke 15, which is our text this morning, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the religious leaders of the day, they grumbled about this, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now pause there for a second. What Jesus is about to enter into is a three-part parable, beginning with a lost sheep and then a lost coin and then the story of the lost Son that we're going to be looking at today, but he's doing so in response to these scribes and Pharisees, these religious holier-than-thous that are looking at the tax collectors and sinners. Now, the tax collectors in this day, in this culture, they were absolute scumbags. They were the ones who would enforce Rome's taxes over the Jews And they were not only backed up by the entire Roman garrison, meaning if you did not pay the tax that a tax collector was demanding you pay, you would be thrown in prison. They not only had the backing of the entire Roman garrison, but they were also able to add a little bit of padding into their taxes. In fact, they could walk up to a Jew and basically shoot from the hip. They could say any amount of money that they would owe in taxes and that Jew would have to pay. This is one of the reasons why Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples who was a Jewish tax collector, was so hated. He was a traitor to the Jews. Now the sinners that Luke is writing about that are surrounding Jesus were prostitutes. They were public drunkards. They were lepers and ex-cons. They were the the marginalized, the people that we didn't want to touch. They were the untouchables. And so the tax collectors and the sinners are all drawing near to Jesus. We see this constantly. They're so attracted to Jesus, and yet it's the religious leaders who are looking from the outside in and they're scoffing and they're grumbling. This man who teaches with the authority of heaven receives sinners and eats with them? How contradictory, how preposterous, right? We gotta get into this mindset as we dive into the parable of the lost son. And like I said, Jesus responds to the scribes and Pharisees with, with basically what is one parable, but kind of told three different ways. And we're going to look at the parable of the lost son, which follows the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. 
And if you would, follow along starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. And then he said, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds here. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he, the younger son, was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, the older son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, by your most Holy Spirit, 
I ask that you give us ears to hear what you're speaking to us today. Holy Spirit, come in power. Articulate the words of Scripture beyond what I can. Penetrate our hearts and transform us by your grace into the new creations you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my, uh, my best buddy growing up was named Adam. His, act, his name is actually still Adam, but he was, uh, he was my best buddy growing up. It's interesting. His name is still Adam. Um, above his bed was this really random abstract poster that was hanging in this, in this big picture frame. And over the years of being in this house, every time I was over to hang out, you know, we'd be upstairs playing video games, and I would see this big abstract poster hanging over his bed. And I thought... And one day I heard him talking to somebody in the lunchroom. He mentioned it to someone, uh, his love of Snoopy, and he has this big picture of Snoopy hanging over his bed. And I remember overhearing him going like, big picture of Snoopy? Dude, I have your house memorized. There is no picture of Snoopy in your room. And so the next time I was over, you know, I pointed out the picture. I was like, dude, remember you were talking to Jason about, it's abstract, man. Look, look. And he goes, no, you look. It's Snoopy. And I'll never forget what happened next as I redirected my focus just a bit and I stared really deeply into the picture. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, for the first time ever, I am seeing Snoopy looking at me. And this was my first encounter with the phenomenon known as the magic eye. Do you remember that? It graced the bedroom wall of like every kid in the 90s. It's like this mangled picture that looks like nothing. And then when you stare at it, all of a sudden this 3D image pops out at you. I was horrified, mystified all at the same time. If you know what I'm talking about, well then if you don't, I'm sorry. But take my word for it, it was, it was wild. Now, now for many of us, this is the parable of the lost son, the, 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 the prodigal son. Now, Prodigal is just a, 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 an extravagant spender. That's what prodigal means. But most translations or some use the word lost son. We've read it a thousand times. We've heard it maybe in Sunday school even a thousand more times. We might even say that this parable is the most famous. It's, it, it's the most familiar. It's the most obvious of all of Jesus' parables. And when we read it along with the, with the lost sheep and the, and the lost coin, we, we see this kind of big picture emerging, this, if you will, abstract picture. But when we start to look a little bit deeper, especially into the parable of the lost son, this new image starts to emerge that we never really knew was there. And we're going to get into that. And I want to tell you right off the bat that this is what this parable is about, and it's my first point, that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's what this parable is illustrating. We're going to dive into that. But point number two is that there's more than one way to be lost, and we're going to look at that in the ensuing moments. But I can't stress enough the importance of this passage and the importance for us to really look at it because underneath what seems to be an obvious, maybe even abstract work of art story, there is 
a hidden layer that is only hidden because our eyes are callous that I want us to see this morning that will benefit us greatly. So let's look at number one. Let's dive into kind of the, the, the purpose, the meaning of this parable that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. After being introduced in verse 11 to the three characters, we see that, you know, the father is two sons. The younger of the two sons goes to his father in verse 12 and essentially instructs the father, which would have been so controversial and wrong, instructs his father to award him the share of the family property that is due him. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, this would have been an insult beyond insults. For the younger son to go to the father before the father was deceased and say, I want what's mine, would have been the same as saying, I really wish you were dead. I get that you're still around, pops, but let's kind of pretend that you're not and give me what's coming to me. That's the tone of what's going on. It would have been a grievous insult. Nevertheless, the father, in just outrageous patience, he had every right to refuse the son because he had every right by Jewish law to live off of what was his until he passed away. But he nevertheless, he gathers the one-third share because the older brother in Jewish custom, custom would have had two-thirds. The younger brother would have gotten a third. He gathers the one-third share of all the crops and the livestock and the trees and the property and the family heirlooms, and he deeds it all over to his younger son, who apparently turns right around and sells it to the highest bidder, gone. One-third of the family legacy, possessions and property, stuff that had been in the family for centuries, sold. And then he walks out the door of his father's house with, with, without so much as a goodbye. And he willingly and just almost zealously, enthusiastically just cuts himself off from his father and older brother and he heads to the big city in a country that is far off. Where verse 14 says, he squanders every last penny. You name it, the prodigal son would have tried it. Everything the world had to offer, drugs, sex, parties, he played hard and fast because at the end of the day, YOLO, you only live once. You only live once. So live for the moment, day after day, night after night. This son surrendered himself over to every desire and whim, doing the things that ought not be done. And so we look at this parable, and what we see is the poster child of iniquity, don't we? The poster child of unrighteousness and sin. But as the story goes, what goes up must come down, and soon the young man's wallet looks just like his heart. It's bankrupt. It's empty. And we know that he hits the lowest of the low in verse 15 because after the money drips, uh, dries up, all of his friends abandon him and he hires himself out to feed pigs, which by Jewish law were unclean. 
Jesus would have been telling the scribes and Pharisees and the crowds, his disciples, this, and they would have been horrified. And what happens is that he's not only feeding his pigs, we see him to start to identify with them, desiring to even eat with them. That's how low the prodigal son gets. The point that Jesus is making is that the younger son has hit the bottomest bottom. He's bankrupt of cash, bankrupt in spirit, and completely cut off because he's now unclean from the people of Israel, from his family. Now, the younger brothers in our towns and cities are often the easiest to identify. They're the ones that are passed out in the corner of the bar. They're strung out on the sidewalk. If you drive through Southside Columbus or even parts of Ashland or Worcester or Cleveland, they're sleeping under the overpasses. They're eating out of the trash cans. They're working the street corners in and out of jail, in and out of juvie. They're the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes, the drunks, the diseased. They're the people who would have been gathering around Jesus in droves. And what's interesting about the younger brothers of society is that when you speak to them, they know they're lost. In verses 17 through 24, we see the younger brother recognize his bankruptcy. He sees the wreckage of his sin and he runs back to his father who runs out with open arms to meet him almost as if he had been waiting and watching since the moment the son left to begin with. He seeks forgiveness in verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He recognizes the great debt that he owes his father and then he automatically assumes that he needs to pay it off. Now, if you've ever been in this position before as the younger brother, the younger son, how many of us come to our heavenly father the, the same way? We see grace and forgiveness on the horizon, and yet we return with a spirit of works on our hearts, offering to work ourselves back into a family that the father is saying, you are in already to begin with. The lost son in this parable is the quintessential story of a sinner being saved. When we hear Jesus in Luke 19 say, I have come to seek and to save the lost, this is whom we think of, is it not? And brothers or sisters, I would encourage you, if you identify with the younger brother this morning, if you examine your life and you see that you have recklessly spent yourself, you've dishonored your parents like the parable, like the son and the, he demanded from his father what was not his. You've, you've abandoned, you've cut yourself off 
from the family of God. You've gone and you've tried everything. You've spent all of yourself looking for satisfaction in places and ways that were never designed to satisfy you. And now you are recognizing the bankruptcy of your position. If you're here this morning, I have really, really good news for you. The kingdom of heaven is for those who are poor in spirit, for those who simply look at their life and say, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer to you, God, but I see your grace made perfect in Jesus and I want in. What can I do? The Father would tell you this morning, there's nothing to do. I sent my perfect son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in your place to do that which you could not do so that you could receive what you did not earn and what you don't deserve. Receive this mercy this morning. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but there's church number two, more than one way to be lost. In fact, this parable might be better titled the parable of the lost sons. Remember, there's a reason why Jesus is telling this parable to begin with. He is responding to the religious crowd, to the scribes and Pharisees who had the outside of their lives all in obedient order, but they were complaining about the tax collectors and sinners who were being accepted by Jesus in verse 2. In the very same way as Jesus tells this parable, we see the older brother getting word that the younger brother has returned. Wait a minute. The same younger brother who'd cut and run with his inheritance? Yes, he was not only back, but he was being celebrated his return was being celebrated. When the older brother hears this, he becomes irate, kind of naturally, right? And he refuses to go into the party. He moans when the father comes out to entreat him. He says, look, father, look at all that I have done for you. Look at all of my obedience, all of my years of relentless work, my, my tireless efforts, my early mornings and my late nights, look at how good I've been. Look at how well-behaved I've been. How mannersome I am on the outside. Look at me. And yet, he says, this Son of yours, Father. Notice how he disconnects himself from the brother. This son of yours has devoured your property. He's insulted you. He's disobeyed you. He's defamed you. He is hopelessly and helplessly a lost cause. And yet you kill the best calf for him. And you throw a massive party for him when you haven't given me so much as a calf to celebrate with my friends, do you hear what the older brother is saying to the father? I have never done the things that this person has. You don't owe him anything, but you owe me everything. The older son 
puts the father in his debt. The older son believes in his heart that the father owes him, is indebted to him. The older son is the scribes and Pharisees who are bummed that Jesus would be inclusive to the marginalized who don't get anything right in their lives. They are angry that he is prioritizing the prostitutes over the pious, the law keepers. The scribes and the Pharisees are the older brother and church, I am the older brother. Me. I have not wrestled in my life with overt unrighteousness. I've lived a pretty, pretty clean-cut life following all of the rules to my own glory. And when I come before the Father on a morning such as this, and I've struggled putting this sermon together, and I say, Lord, give me a good sermon. Look at all of the ways I've been obedient to you. How many times do we do this if we're honest with ourselves? Do we bring in our track records and we say to the holy, perfect, blameless, exalted creator God, you owe me this because look at my life. When in reality, the posture of my heart is like vinegar to a thirsty king. Like the picture that was above my friend's bed, the longer we stare at the parable of the lost son, we begin to see a Snoopy hidden underneath, don't we? The older son is the lost son. I am the lost son. If you've grown up in 21st century middle America where things have been pretty easy for you and you've lived a pretty clean cut life, I can almost guarantee you that your propensity is to be the lost son. Looking down upon those who don't have it all outwardly put together like we do. And we stand just as guilty as the older son and the tax, as just as guilty as the tax collectors and the prostitutes. See, if you can resonate with this, maybe you can. Though I have not lived my life doing all of the wrong things, I've lived my life doing all of the right things for the wrong reasons. I'm the blatantly self-righteous older brother coming before my heavenly father to show him all of my obedience. The unexpected twist of this parable applies to those of us in the room who don't really think of ourselves as lost. I love Tim Keller wrote a book about this parable called The Prodigal God. And he actually says that the only prodigal in this parable 
is God himself for the extravagant spending by sending his son to die. What a cost, what a price for such wretched men. God is the prodigal. I would recommend that book to you, but in it he says about this parable, Tim Keller, Jesus' purpose in this parable, church, is not to warm our hearts. It is to shatter our categories. Uh, When I was in college, I'll confess this bit of sin to you quickly, that I worked at Hollister. And... (laughs) And, uh, and while I was working at Hollister with my long hair, uh, my, nothing against long hair, I just can't do it anymore, it's all gray, um, there was a store that opened that was a sister company to Hollister and Abercrombie called Rule. And if you didn't hear about it and if you didn't know about it, it's because you didn't deserve to be there, was literally the, the, the marketing scheme. They would open these stores in major cities and they would not hang signs out front. There was nothing. It looked like a door in the middle of a mall that would go back to like the, the facilities. But that was the purpose that those who knew it was there, once you got in, it was like a, a blue jeans mecca with like loud music. And, and it was like this club where people would all kind of hang out like, wow, we've, we've arrived here at Easton Town Center. <laughs> but there is... There is a truth about this that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin that really is illuminated in, in Mark chapter 2. Look, this is the same. Rule clothing is the same with our lostness. Only those of us who actually see and know that we're lost can enter into the kingdom of heaven by the way of Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 2, I did not come to earth to save those who think they're well. I came to earth to save those who know they are sick. And thus we see why the tax collectors and the prostitutes would come to Jesus in droves. They knew there was no admittance fee. They knew that the only thing they needed to bring to Jesus was need and they were in. This is whom the kingdom of heaven is for. And we can see how impossible it is when, like the older brother, we are all pumped up on our own self-righteousness. We don't feel, ultimately, at the end of the day, a need to receive grace from Jesus. Who would need to give this grace? I'm so well put together. I clean the outside of the cup like the Pharisees so well. Don't be fooled, church. Even as one of the shepherds here in this church, my heart is wicked to the core. I love this quote, and I'll close with this from Jared C. Wilson. He's a writer and pastor. He said, The promise of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, as seen in this parable, is for sinners on both sides of the tracks. For those who are near and those who are far away, but ironically enough, in the economy of the kingdom, those farthest away from the kingdom turn out to be the Hebrew of Hebrews huddled around the Torah. The Pauls, the Pharisees before his conversion that would be perfect every letter of the law with a rotten heart. 
And here's the good news of the gospel for us all this morning. Brothers and sisters, no matter which brother we identify with, the Father comes running to both. He ran out to the lost son younger, and he came out onto the porch with the lost son older. At the end of the parable, we come to find that the Father, who represent God the Father, is the prodigal. He's the extravagant spender. And I'll close with this bit of heresy that I read on a church sign a couple of weeks ago that said, God is in the business of helping those who help themselves. Lord, we pray for that church and that pastor and we ask that the good news of the gospel would penetrate their hearts that God is in the business of helping those who know they cannot help themselves. Oh God, I'm the older brother. Please forgive me. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Lord, by acknowledging that we are lost, we can be found. Glory, glory, hallelujah, in Jesus' name. Amen.